From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. The helpers are there, uh, and the helpers are putting themselves at great risk for us. And helping doesn't necessarily mean running into a hospital to care for patients. Helping could also mean sharing resources like we're doing today. That's Brian Ramos on the industry's willingness to collaborate and communicate in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll hear more from Brian on strategies practices should consider as they resume operations in today's new normal. But first, a word from our sponsor. A proven payment solution for patients' out-of-pocket cost, the Care Credit Health, Wellness, and Personal Care Credit Card gives cardholders a convenient way to pay for treatments and procedures at locations in the Care Credit network. Payment flexibility is increasingly important as patients may face economic and health concerns in light of the coronavirus pandemic. With promotional financing for purchases of $200 or more, cardholders can move forward with the care they need and want today and make monthly payments over time. For healthcare providers navigating financial and operational challenges resulting from the pandemic, Care Credit can help reduce time and effort devoted to billing and collections while increasing patient satisfaction. Accepting Care Credit as a payment option is easy and quick, and you receive payment within two business days. Care Credit currently has over 11 million cardholders and is accepted in more than 240,000 locations nationwide. Learn more about how CareCredit helps providers deliver a better patient financial experience at carecredit.com slash MGMA podcast. Nearly all respondents to a recent MGMA stat poll indicated that they've reopened their practice to in-person visits. Doing so in the current COVID-19 landscape, however, has hardly been as easy as the flip of a switch. Here this week with advice on executing an action plan for resuming operations is Brian Ramos, Chief Operating Officer of Capital Anesthesia Partners and President and Board Chair of Maryland MGMA. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Good morning, Daniel. Happy to be with you virtually today. Absolutely. So, we have all been dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and in healthcare practice administrators for these last couple of months, they've been dealing with PPE, with furloughs, layoffs, all kinds of staffing issues, managing expenses. Um, But we're kind of moving to a different phase right now. We're moving into that reopening phase. You and I had the opportunity to be on an MGMA webinar this past week on resuming operations. And it's so much to take in, so much information. So I just wanted to start uh, by talking to you and and get your thoughts on what are some of the first steps uh, that a practice administrator can take? Yeah, uh, thanks for setting the stage for the conversation. You know, we are all really exhausted uh, and we've been overwhelmed. Uh, The hardest part about this is that everything that we've done for the past two months has been new to us. Uh, We've had to collect and analyze and then act on new information 
And some of the guidance that we've received, particularly from the federal agencies, has been incomplete, which has then required us to sort of make some educated guesses about interpretation of statutes or applicability to our practice. Uh, so as we start thinking about reopening, uh, we really need to consider our practices as startups uh, because that's that's what we are. Uh, you know, over the last two months, all, any outstanding accounts receivable uh, will have been collected, which means there's no future money coming in until you start reopening your practice. And then once you do reopen, it's going to take several weeks to months for those new charges to be paid by the commercial carriers. Uh, so a few ideas about how to think about restarting your practice would be to first gather any information that you might need and organize that data. Uh, so this could be financial information, uh, your prior staff schedules, your prior provider templates. And then secondly, start thinking about what your anticipated volume might be, including a ramp-up schedule. And this is going to be the hardest part of it because we don't yet know uh, what that new volume is going to look like in our practices. It will vary by specialty. It will vary by geographic location based on the impact of the virus. And so you'll want to consult with your physicians about any assumptions that you're making in order to be able to try to uh, test out those hypotheses. Uh, and then finally, you'll want to use all of that information to develop a pro forma so that you can right size your staffing ratios and other variable expenses. And since we don't yet know what that new volume is going to look like, you may want to create several iterations of that document where you have, you know, uh, intervals of potential volume. So if you expect it to be at 75% of your prior volume, and that's how you're going to build your staffing templates and your provider templates, what does that look like if those assumptions are either optimistic or pessimistic? And, and can you develop alternative uh, pro formas to fit a couple of different scenarios uh, so that you have something ready to enact uh, when the time comes and when you have more reliable information from which to make decisions. Absolutely, yeah, thanks for that. Um, following up on that, you know, states are starting to reopen. Um, they're reopening to non-emergency and elective medical visits. When we think about it, patients haven't been able to get some of those types of procedures done. so we think that there's pent up demand that patients are, the volume is gonna be uh, maybe even astronomical out there, but what are you seeing in reality? What really is going on when uh, you're looking at practices, your own or other practices across the country? Yeah, so my anesthesia practice is located in the Maryland DC area, which is currently still a hotspot. And so elective cases haven't yet resumed and we're still only providing care for about 5% of our pre-COVID volume. Uh, and we've, you're right, we've heard a lot about pent-up demand for medical services. I think there is some pent-up demand just because uh, all elective cases have been shut down for two months. And so at least initially, uh, there will be an influx of volume in medical practices. But I think that may be short-lived, maybe two to four weeks. After that, I think we're going to see another reduction in volume to what I'll call new, new normal volume. Uh, since we don't have point-of-care testing, we don't yet have contact tracing capabilities, and we obviously don't have a vaccine, I think many patients will continue to either delay or defer any non-urgent care out of an abundance of caution. 
And even if there is a significant pent-up demand, I think one of the concerns that practices are, is practices are going to have to overcome is the capacity with which they can actually see the volume of patients that may need care, given the need for physical distancing and increased disinfecting between patients. In order to provide care safely in our endoscopy centers, uh, we're actually going to flip between two procedure rooms with the same gastroenterologist and anesthesia provider, uh, which in effect reduces our capacity in half. It's also important to remember that 20 million Americans have lost their jobs so far. And there's an estimate by the Kaiser Family Foundation that 27 million people have lost their employer-sponsored health insurance. And so patients may either not want to enter medical practices unless, you know, they have something urgent going on. They may not have health insurance coverage. We may be operating at limited capacities. And so these issues really make me pessimistic about any real pent-up demand and, and accelerated uh, volume ramp-up assumptions that, that others are making in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is going to be the challenge here to see how that plays out. Um, I wanted to switch gears now to something that you mentioned in a recent webinar uh, that you presented. You brought up something what you called an eat what you kill model. Uh, that definitely caught my attention. What is that and how does it relate to a medical practice? Sure. So in many private practice physician groups, uh, they compensate their shareholders based on productivity. And so in a fee-for-service payment model, that means that shareholders are paid directly based on the amount of revenue that they generate for the practice. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is the pandemic has demonstrated that while healthcare in general is essential, many of our practices are largely elective in nature. Uh, so if, if the volume that we talked about just a moment ago continues to be reduced for many specialty practices, then practice revenue and therefore profit or shareholder income uh, will be considerably lower. And so one issue that practices will need to address is how are shareholders in particular compensated, especially if that shareholder doesn't feel comfortable entering the workforce, either because of their age uh, or underlying medical conditions, meaning that if they contract COVID-19, that they would have a harder time resolving that diagnosis? And will there be a differential paid to providers uh, for those who, for example, come into the office effectively working combat pay uh, versus those who work from home remotely providing telehealth? One of the issues that uh, we talked about offline is staffing. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this. So when we look at potential solutions, something that you've mentioned in some of your other papers and your uh, presentations is using rotating teams. Tell us a little bit more about that and how it could be beneficial to an organization in this environment. Yeah, so the, the issue with bringing patients and staff into your office is that there's still very limited testing capabilities out there. And so you have to assume that every person, every patient that comes into the practice is potentially COVID-19 positive. So you need to protect your workforce so that if one of those, one of those employees becomes ill, your entire practice isn't affected and forced to shut down yet again. 
So essentially, my recommendation has been to think about placing your in-office staff on multidisciplinary teams uh, that work together as a pod. So think about uh, team one is going to be comprised of Dr. A, a nurse B, medical assistant C, tech D, receptionist E. And team two is comprised of entirely different uh, set of people but in those same roles. Uh, and you'll do that for as many teams as you can create based on your available staff. And these teams then never work in the office at the same time, or these pairs of teams never work in the office at the same time. So if you have four teams and you want team one and team two to work together, team three and team four aren't in the office when those first two teams are working. Um, this way, if any member of that team falls ill with COVID-19-like symptoms, uh, irrespective of whether you have the capability of testing because of the number of false negatives, the entire team can self-quarantine for 14 days, effectively falling out of the rotation where another team takes that spot. Uh, our endoscopy centers uh, actually decided to do this really early on when we started providing care for just emergent cases two months ago uh, to really reduce the risk of exposure for our staff. And you know, as we think about our reduced capacity where we're only going to be able to use half the number of procedure rooms because of the uh, need to flip-flop, uh, we'll probably still provide care in these teams. It works well and protects the workforce from everybody needing to self-quarantine for some period of time if there's a, an exposure. Yeah, to follow up on that, so, you know, maintaining physical distance as employees is, is really important, but the practice administrators need to be considering it when it comes to keeping that distance for patients. I mean, We've all been in waiting rooms and we know how crowded and susceptible to close encounters they can be. So how do we get around that? How does that work? What does it look like? It's a great question. Uh, some practice administrators that I've spoken to are actually closing their waiting room entirely. They're not using it and pretending like it doesn't actually exist in the footprint of their office. Um, and I tend to look at what others are doing to get ideas about how medical practices might be able to take some of the great ideas that are already out there and implement them in their practice. So if you take a look at your local grocery store, or at least my local grocery store, uh, they have two entrances and exits. Well, one is now designated as the entrance only, and the other is now the exit only in order to control flow within the stores. Uh, they've actually placed uh, arrows on the floor using uh, painter's tape uh, to control the flow from one aisle to another aisle in order to, again, maintain physical distancing of customers. Uh, at the checkout counters, there are circles that are separated by six feet so that you know how far apart six feet really is from a distance perspective while you're waiting in queue for the checkout. And then there are, you know, plexiglass shields that protect the cashier from the customer when they're checking out, since that's going to be a high touch point period, uh, because you're spending that much time at checkout, you know, five minutes, let's say, to bag and, and check out all your groceries. So rather than reinvent the wheel in a medical practice, why not do the same thing that our local grocers are doing? And I would add, you know, in particular, with regard to the waiting room, that you know, you can have the parking lot effectively become your waiting room where patients are waiting in their cars 
until you either call or text them to let them know that it's time for them to come into their office visit appointment. I would consider doing both check-in and check-out virtually to limit the amount of time that patients are actually in your office setting. And then I would also consider having patients room themselves. Uh, so if you know that patient is going into exam room three, when they walk through the door, they can walk down the hallway themselves to find room three, assuming that you can create some kind of wayfinding system within your practice. But I would think about that. You know, one, one point that your question doesn't address that I think is equally important is maintaining physical separation of your staff. And one, one touch point that I think is going to be important to consider is your break room. Think about how lunch used to happen in your practice where everybody sort of breaks at the same time, they go to the same area, they sit at community tables and eat. If you haven't started thinking about how lunch breaks are going to occur and where they're going to occur for your staff, that's another area that I think you're gonna to have to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the other ways, we've heard some other uh, experts in the field talk about this to maintain some level of patient volume is to extend service hours to evenings and weekends. Have you heard about this, seen it in practice? I mean, what would this look like? Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think everything is really on the table. Uh, my practice is considering extending the day, uh, effectively running about 13 hour days uh, in our endoscopy centers and opening on the weekends. Uh, Alternatively, you may even have to hire additional staff in order to be able to deal with that demand and, and have uh, your staff work in shifts, a morning shift and an afternoon shift. Uh, and that would be a great problem to have since we were closed for two months, right? Having to hire more staff than you thought you needed to, so long as the volume's there. Uh, but it comes back to exactly that point of right-sizing your staff uh, and your schedules to what that volume that you expect to be is actually going to happen. And then adjust that accordingly, realizing that again, if there's a moderate influx initially, but then it drops, you're gonna to have to again, right size the staff and the schedules. They're, they're both work in tandem. Uh, and so I'd like to borrow from other experiences of, that I've had. I've managed pediatric and primary care practices in the past. And so in those clinics, they're used to having an influx of patients coming in on a cyclical basis. For pediatrics, it's immunization clinics uh, right around time for back to school. Or for primary care practices, it's flu clinics that usually happen in the fall. So dust off those plans and see if those might be applicable to how you think about staffing patterns and schedules as you begin to reopen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to switch gears now to one of the hottest topics in healthcare, and that's telehealth. You and I were talking about telehealth offline. Um, we've seen it adopted over these last couple of months. Patients are getting familiar with it. They're getting used to it. But now we're also hearing about, well, things could get rolled back. Will they still be able to do that? Um, I really want to look at it from this perspective. Uh, how important is it for practices to come up with a plan for integrating telehealth into their normal operations uh, in order to uh, be able to keep providing it? It's absolutely critical. Uh, patients have gotten used to being provided telehealth services over the last few months, and medical practices really weren't prepared for it. Uh, 
some were providing telehealth, but that was really through the use of mobile apps uh, for concierge medicine practices. But the average uh, medical practice just hadn't yet adopted the technology. It's been available for a while. We've just been very slow to do it, much like we were slow to adopt EHRs. And so patients have gotten used to it. And so if you don't offer that service moving forward and don't find a way to integrate telehealth services into your flow when you reopen, I think you run the risk of those patients leaving your practice and going to someone else that's offering that service. And that's going to hurt your practice because it's only going to further reduce any lost revenue and volume that you were expecting to have. Uh, and you're right. Uh, CMS has relaxed a lot of regulations about practices being able to use sort of unsecure methods of communication during the pandemic, like FaceTime. But we all think that those regulations will tighten up pretty quickly. Uh, so I think a couple of things are important for practices. One is to make sure that you have a technology solution that complies with the prior security requirements, uh, not the current relaxed rules. And just like you're projecting your volume for when you reopen, determine how many of those visits might be conducted virtually versus face-to-face. Uh, and then remember, we were talking about uh, physical distancing of the staff and potentially mm-hmm. having staff work in teams. So why not let those providers who are uh, not providing direct services in office that week provide those telehealth services? And why not have those providers work remotely when they're providing that service again in order to ensure physical distancing? So all great ideas on how to integrate it, but you know, making sure you're using a secure platform and planning for what that potential volume might be realizing that there may be a shift to more telehealth than in person. Uh, Maybe you only need patients to come in uh, if there's really a need for a physical exam, which is gonna be pretty limited uh, in most uh, cases for most specialties. Yeah, Uh, thanks for sharing that because telehealth really is top of mind for practices right now. And it's gonna be interesting and challenging to see how all of this you know, is fully implemented as we do completely reopen and and get past this crisis time. I wanted to switch gears now to something that I found on your LinkedIn page. You wrote an article there recently um, on contact tracing, and you wrote a line there that says, as practices reopen, it will become critical for medical practices to designate an internal contact tracer I just want to know, why do you believe so strongly about that? And what will be the specific role of that internal contact tracer? Yeah, thanks for asking me about this idea. I I was actually just talking with one one of my referring providers today, a gastroenterologist for whom we provide anesthesia services at his endoscopy center. And he also agreed that this internal contact tracing idea is a good one, and there are a few reasons why. One, there aren't robust contact tracing programs available within any, within any community right now. Uh, many states are starting to develop them. New York State, uh, Governor Cuomo has, has asked to create an army of contact tracers, and Mike Bloomberg has donated over $10 million to fund that. Uh, but I think there are two pieces to this. One is that uh, those resources are going to be very limited. And two, you have an opportunity to 
demonstrate to both your patients and your staff that your medical practice is as safe as possible by developing your own internal contact tracing position. So what does that look like? Uh, effectively, uh, you're going to be screening all of your patients and your staff before they come into the office that day. But what's your follow-up after they leave that practice to, to understand whether there was actually any potential exposure while they were in your practice setting? So the position would actually follow up with every patient seen at some interval of time after their visit to determine whether they've developed any COVID-19-like symptoms, whether they've tested positive, or whether they've interacted with somebody who has tested positive. What that's going to do is allow you to determine any potential risk that might have exposed your staff or other patients who happen to be in that practice setting at the same time with. Alternatively, on the other end, um, you're going to contact trace your providers and staff such that if they contracted COVID-19-like symptoms, whether they contracted it in the office or out in the community, likely because you're not going to be able to tell where that exposure might have occurred, you can then reach out to those patients who were seen by those providers or staff on those days and say, you might be potentially exposed and here's what you need to do next. I think it's also a great way to sort of market your practice to staff and patients alike that it's safe to come to work. It's safe to receive your care. And that may be uh, the solution to the barrier that we talked about earlier of patients not feeling uh, like they want to run the risk of potential exposure out of abundance of caution by staying home. This would allow them to come into your medical practice, seek medical care, and know that they're as safe as they can be, recognizing that you can't uh, completely 100% uh, provide a safe environment, but you're doing more than your competitors are uh, in your area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, one of the things that's been on my mind and that I've noticed in this crisis, and this is a positive, I've seen collaboration uh, in the healthcare community. I've seen thought sharing, thought leadership, uh, people having two-way conversations. And in one of the recent webinars that you, where you presented, you, you had a comment that said you probably left attendees asking more questions after the presentation than they had going in. And I think that's a, that can be a good thing because there is this real dialogue uh, that's taking place right now in healthcare as people are really sharing ideas. I want you to expound on that if you can. Tell us a little bit about why it's so important that people are asking questions now instead of waiting around and, and just finding a whole lot of problems in their way down the road. Right, so um, I'm not an expert, uh, and none of us are, because none of us have ever dealt with this before. Uh, but I think we can each draw from our own prior experiences and then share that information with others so as to create a, a, a long list of questions and issues and ideas to consider, realizing some of this may not apply to your practice, but many will because there are sort of general ideas like we've talked about of, you know, how do you maintain physical distancing of staff and patients? Uh, so looking back at sort of my prior experience as a kid, I was a Boy Scout and the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. And that's followed me through my professional career where 
you know, I'd rather plan for various scenarios and alternatives and, and never have to use those plans uh, than be unprepared and stuck. Uh, and so, you know, all the activity that I've done over the last few months is thinking critically and having my board think critically about potential decisions we have to make down the road. Uh, I haven't forced them into any of these conversations yet because we haven't had to, but I've teased them with the ideas uh, that I think we might have to consider, one, so that they can start thinking about it now and, and form opinions about how we might approach those questions or strategies, uh, rather than sort of bombarding them when it's critical that they need to make a decision today. It's a lot easier to give people time to thoughtfully consider what alternatives might be if you think about those questions today, then if you say, look, I didn't anticipate this, uh, we need to make a decision today, your options are A and B and they're both bad. Well, perhaps if you had asked those questions before and started considering those before, other alternatives might have actually presented themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, now, one of the things we like to do on the MGMA podcast is provide our listeners with additional resources. Do you have any resources, links, anything of that nature that would help our listeners as they uh, resume their operations? Yeah, so it's a great follow-up to your last question because there's no way that I could have done the work that I've done, even in my presentations and conversations with others, without the help of other people. And so a couple of specific resources. The MGMA member community, particularly the COVID-19 member community, has been probably the best listserv that I've participated in. Uh, there's a wealth of information on really specific details uh, related to the, either the PPP loan or the HHS stimulus funds. Uh, and there are lots of people who are willing to volunteer their time to share their experience, share their knowledge. And so that resource, if, if members haven't accessed that, that database of information, has been very helpful over the past uh, few months. And then in collaboration with the MGMA content team, based on the presentation that you referenced earlier, uh, we developed a checklist for practice executives to use as they start thinking about restarting their practice. And so you know, not everything on the list is going to apply to every practice, and it's not meant to be exhaustive in, by any means, uh, but it is a way in which to begin thinking about some of the questions that you might not have thought of top of mind. And so I would point folks to that uh, URL, which is bit.ly forward slash MGMA COVID-19 checklist. It's a three-page document, easy to download and follow, and you know, sort of cross out anything that doesn't apply to your practice, add other notes, and if there are ways in which we can improve that document, let us know. And then the, the third source of information that's been really helpful has been the specialty societies, because they've been able to think about these same issues on a specific specialty or facility uh, type of, of, uh, of viewpoint, which has been helpful, where MGMA, MGMA has allowed us to think more broadly about the federal programs and specialty societies have, have put a lot of more meat on the bones in terms of what is open look like in an outpatient uh, ambulatory surgical center, for example. And so be sure to check your specialty societies because they're going to have different information that's really pertinent to your particular practice. 
Yeah, thank you for those resources. And we'll make those available in the uh, podcast notes as well for our listeners. Um, a final thought here then, I wanted to get your you to share a, a wonderful story with us. You've closed some of your recent presentations with a poignant quote from a lovable TV character. Um, it's pretty timely considering all that's going on in the world today. I was hoping you could share that quote with our audience and just to tell us why it resonates so strongly with you. <laughs> sure. So uh, I grew up watching PBS and more specifically uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, and so I, I, you know, as a kid, I loved when the trolley left his home to go to the land of make-believe. Uh, but Fred Rogers had a famous quote uh, that reads, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And so if there was ever a time where we needed help, it's right now. Uh, and I've been incredibly impressed with the volunteerism, the thoughtfulness of strangers, the access to information, not just within uh, MGMA and, and the member community and, and my practice administrator colleagues, but just sort of globally. If you think about sort of when hotspot cities sounded the alarm asking for healthcare providers uh, nationally to come in and help uh, be reinforcements. Uh, physicians, nurses, and others, you know, just jumped on a plane and flew to where they were needed. Uh, in fact, there's a, a registered nurse from Columbus, Ohio, uh, who traveled to Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago to care for COVID-19 patients. And uh, he unfortunately contracted the virus and is currently in an ICU fighting for his life. Uh, his name is Michael Rhodes. And so, you know, the helpers are there uh, and the helpers are putting themselves at great risk for us. And helping doesn't necessarily mean running into a hospital to care for patients. Helping could also mean sharing resources like we're doing today. Brian, that is, uh, that's a beautiful quote. And I love your interpretation of it and what it means in today's environment. So, Thanks for sharing that with us today and for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me as your guest, Daniel. That's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Care Credit for sponsoring this week's show. To learn more about how they're helping providers deliver a better patient financial experience, visit carecredit.com slash MGMA podcast. Also, Thanks to our guest, Brian Ramos. To hear more from Brian on today's conversation, search for the MGMA on-demand webinar, Resuming Operations After COVID-19, which is eligible for ACMPE, ACHE, and CEU credit at mgma.com slash events. You can also access a COVID-19 medical practice reopening checklist compiled by Brian and MGMA industry advisors at bit.ly slash MGMA COVID-19 checklist, all lowercase. To keep up with the latest regarding the pandemic, be sure to visit mgma.com slash COVID. You can also connect with fellow members and healthcare peers at community.mgma.com. 
MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.